So thank you for turning on this episode of the Bar Review Podcast. My name is Jake, and this is a show where I get drunk and I tell you about the law. Today I'm drinking some Blue Moon beer, and the topic for today is negligence. So get your tort pants on, guys. We're going to war. And so the rule for negligence is that to prove negligence, you got to show that a person had a duty to exercise reasonable care, and that duty was breached. There was causation in fact, proximate cause, and an injury causing damages. So what the fuck does that even mean? You got the duty of reasonable care. And this is just kind of a a nebulous term that asks what a reasonably prudent person would have done in those same or similar circumstances. And Judge Cardozo says in a case called Paul's Graph that a duty exists to those within the foreseeable zone of danger. And so you got the existence of a duty. The court imposes the existence of a duty where the likelihood of harm and the severity of that harm outweighs the cost of precaution. Meaning that if there's a high likelihood that someone's going to get injured and they're going to get like severely injured, but the cost of keeping that shit from happening is like, you know, putting up a fence or something cheap, they're going to put a duty on you to act reasonably. And so you got breach. And this is a question of fact, meaning that a jury is finding this. And this looks at whether or not the defendant acted as a reasonably prudent person would in the same or similar circumstances. Now we're going to go to causation. And so this is but for causation, which means but for the defendant's actions, the injury would not have occurred. And then you have proximate cause. And this is the fucking fire swamp for this episode. And the doctrine of proximate cause is a limitation on liability. It's all about foreseeability. Proximate cause determines how far the court will extend liability only after it determines that a defendant was the in fact cause of that injury. And to limit, you look at the foreseeability of the injury to the specific plaintiff in question. So you look at the distance, the space, the time between, you know, the but-for cause and the injury itself. And, you know, the less amount of time between the but-for causation and the injury, the more foreseeable the result it becomes. And in the exceptions but not really portion of this episode, you have negligence per se, which means that just straight up negligence, you you don't have to prove the existence of a duty or anything. And you can be negligent per se if a, a statute exists saying you have a duty and someone violated that statute, that's the duty and then the subsequent breach, the injured person falls between the class of people that the statute is intended to protect and the injury is the type of injury that the statute was designed to protect against. The causation, there's just gotta be a casual link between the statute, the action, and then the injury, and you have to have an injury. But then you gotta think about superseding acts. This is an unforeseeable intervening cause that breaks the chain of causation between that initial wrongful act that the defendant did and the ultimate injury, thus relieves the original you know, tort causer from any liability. And then you have the rescue doctrine. This allows an injured rescuer to sue a party which caused the danger requiring the rescue in the first place. It's just from a policy standpoint to meant to encourage people to rescue. So if you were negligent and you caused a like a car accident, not only can the person who you injured through your car accident sue you for negligence, but if anyone rescues that injured person from the car and gets injured in the process, they can fucking sue your ass. 
And last one, you got Recipsiloquitur, which is a fancy Latin douchey way to say the thing speaks for itself. And remember, it's a rule of evidence in negligence, and it just replaces the need to prove duty and breach. And it just means that, more likely than not, the event is the kind that normally does not occur, you know, absent of negligence, and that the injury must have been caused by an instrumentality or condition under the defendant's exclusive dominion and control. So, like, you know, you walk past a, a piano selling place and a piano falls from the goddamn, you know, like, ceiling or something and crushes you, you don't gotta prove duty and breach, because that shit speaks for itself. And before we get to the examples, we gotta get into some defenses to negligence. And these will probably all be episodes within themselves, but things to consider. You have contributory negligence, which means it asks whether you were also negligent in some manner that contributed to your own injury. And if so, then you get nothing. So if someone hits you with their car, but you were also jaywalking or were negligent that way, you ain't getting shit. But then you have comparative negligence, which is similar to contrib, but it assigns percentages to both y'all's negligence, and it lowers your damages by the amount of that percentage. And then you have assumption of the risk, which is basically just consent, so you can't sue them in the first place. All right, let's go. Let's fucking go for these examples. Number one, your friend Danny invites you to a basketball game in the big March Madness tournament. You get front row seats to the show, and the dudes are playing. And let's say, for the sake of argument, you're watching the number one seeded team get absolutely crushed by the rank eight team. Well, one of the players gets fouled and the ref doesn't make a call. The player gets super, super fucking mad because sports are, you know, super serious. Even though the NCAA players, they don't get paid at all and it's a fucking racket and the NCAA is a fucking sham organization that should be disassembled. Well, here we go. The player that gets fouled, he loses his shit and he takes the basketball and he chucks that fucking thing at the ground and it bounces off the ground and towards the crowd of people hitting you square in the fucking head at 80 miles an hour, causing your head to fracture. Do you have a claim for negligence here? Let's go through it. Is there a duty? Remember. Generally, there's no duty to act, but when you act, you have a duty to act as a reasonable, prudent person would under similar circumstances, meaning that this basketball player had a duty to act as a reasonable NCAA basketball player, but he also breached that duty when he lost his shit and threw the ball that eventually hit you, and you were in the foreseeable zone of danger, aka the danger zone, because you were in the front row. Now, we gotta look at the but-for cause. This is that actual causation here. And this shit's easy, because but-for the player throwing the ball, you wouldn't have been hit in the fucking head. But then you look at the proximate cause. This is the foreseeability test. And it's reasonably foreseeable that a ball that is renowned for bouncing will bounce off the floor when chucked. And it's foreseeable that a ball bouncing at 80 miles an hour will cause some damages. And then you gotta prove damages for negligence, too. And you must allege damages and your fractured skull is a fucking damage, so enjoy that money. Although, you probably won't get as much money, because remember, the NCAA doesn't pay its players, so you're probably gonna be shit out of luck, depending on their private insurance. Fuck you, NCAA! Number two. Dwight Schrute at Dunder Mifflin Paper Company is conducting his fire safety drill. He cuts the phone lines, he starts a fire in the trash can, smoke fills the entire office, and the employees of Dunder Mifflin lose their shit. They smash windows, crawling through the air ducts, they throw their cat in a ceiling, and they destroy office equipment. Dwight reveals it was only a drill, but Stanley subsequently has a heart attack. Was Dwight negligent here? 
This is the easiest example of negligence, because Dwight had a duty to exercise reasonable care, and as the fire safety officer, he has a duty to exercise care as a reasonable fire safety officer. Which means he probably just had to give those motherfuckers instructions and not set the goddamn office on fire. And he's clearly breached that shit. The panic is the actual cause and the proximate cause of all that destruction. And clearly, there's a lot of damages there. In the same example as before, this is the third one. And let's say that when Michael Scott throws the chair through the window, it careens down hitting one of the Bob Vance Vance refrigeration trucks, causing one of the mirrors to break off. And that truck, not realizing the damages, goes and drives and accidentally merges without being able to see someone because of their missing window and crushes their car, which was carrying a load of fireworks, which explode, causing the person in that car to be burned. Can that person sue Dwight? No. This is a good example of proximate cause, really the hardest part of negligence as a whole, because the damage incurred must be foreseeable from the act that caused the chain of events. People panicking in the office and breaking shit is totally foreseeable. But a person miles away from the building being cut off and burned by a bunch of fireworks? Not really foreseeable. The zone of danger for this case is likely just the area outside the Dunder Mifflin office building. So if someone got hit you know, by the chair that Michael threw, that would have been proximately caused by Dwight's negligence. And so for the ways to study this, just remember the elements. You got duty, you got breach, you have actual causation, proximate causation, and damages. Keep in mind all those defenses we went over earlier, and we'll save them for a future episode as well. So thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Bar Review Podcast. I've been drinking some Blue Moon beer. I'm Jake, and that shit was the law. <laughs> <laughs>